This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. So I'm wondering, Professor Goodwin, could you provide an overview from your perspective and your media involvement, which is extensive and so impressive, about what the key issues at stake are? But first, I think if you could, because this is a conversation I think that we need to be having more often, is if you could outline the legal and medical foundations of Roe. So, for example, and I'm going to use Roe as an abbreviation for Roe v. Wade. What it does and what it does not do, who is benefited and not from Roe's frameworks, and what is routinely called, and I've I've done this myself, the chipping away at Roe. And now I'm going to start calling it the hammering away at Roe. Chiseling. Well, well, you might have to remind me because that's like a multi, multi-part <laughs> yes, question. But it's great because it really does open the door for so much. So before I begin, I want to thank you all for coming out. Thank you so much for that very generous and warm introduction. Um, thank you, Greg, for having the foresight to do this, um, that prescience to center this kind of conversation even before a leaked draft opinion would come out. And I really want to take a moment on that because it says so much because for those of us who've been working in this area, Kathleen, Lori, you, myself, others who are here, um, this is not a new conversation. The warning calls are not new. Um, My latest book, Policing the Womb, which you've just heard about, came out in 2020, but it was a 10-year project. And along the way, I was speaking everywhere and giving lectures for 20 years. I've been talking about the very things that are the center of this conversation today. And so it connects in many ways to the question that you asked, because underneath it all, it says something about who gets center stage and who's listened to during these times. I've been saying that black and brown women have been the canaries in the coal mine. And if we had bothered to pay attention to what was happening to them in the late 1980s and 1990s, then we would have seen the kind of agenda that was taking a foot. But I think it says a lot about who's valued in society, whose harms are recognized. And I think it says a lot, too, about groups of communities, and this goes to perhaps a point that you were making, Greg, about the indigenous communities here on whose lands we now sit and have this conversation. If we're used to certain people as being abused, as being put upon, as being treated in, in ways that are not dignified, then we can look past it because it's a norm. And if we situate ourselves with thinking about what's been so normalized in our culture, from its historical origins, and I know this wasn't your question, but it's a great way to lead into Roe, which is that if you pause and you think about it, there's actually never really been a time in which we've taken that moment in our country and in our society to say, oh my goodness, what was the experience of indigenous women? There's no pause about that. What was it like to be on that trail of tears? What's it like when your children are taken away from you and put in a boarding school where they're stripped of their culture, where they're put upon, where they are subjected to mental cruelties, physical cruelties, and sometimes die in the process? What does that mother and those legacies of mothers, what do they think about on Mother's Day? 
we don't take that pause and think about, well, what was the experience of black women who were literally kidnapped, right? That's kidnap. We don't even bother to think of it as kidnap, but we'd know if someone came to your home and took your daughter away, we call that kidnap. Mm -hmm. And then if we found out that she was sexually exploited and sexually trafficked, we call that sexual trafficking. If, if we found out that she was not only kidnapped and then forced to have sex and reproduce for someone else's private benefit, and except on the day when she gives birth, and even on that day, she's supposed to be out working for nothing that she gets. We call that labor trafficking. We don't even pause to do that. And then something else that we don't pause to do, which I think helps to level set, is to think about the following, and it's something that I've been thinking about as I've been thinking about ways to engage these conversations such that we get to a deeper level. I think about how do we understand what a mother says the night before the slave auction? Now we know slave auctions took place all over the place. Near Wall Street was the second largest slave auction house in the country, right? So all over the country. And so we know this frequently happened. Can you imagine what a mother has to say the night before the auction where she's about to be sold off or her daughter's about to be sold off? Now, what do you say when you and your child have been relegated to the status of property, but you know you're not property? You know you're a human being. And even more, you know your child is a human being. But you'll never be able to be with that child again because nothing will allow you to connect to that child. And somehow you must give your child some meaning that night before such that that child forever will hold in her heart, I am human. These people call me property. This government calls me property. They subject me to the worst of things and tell me I have no value higher than the goat or the mule out there. And how do you keep that child holding something deeper and more relevant and with hope and grace about who these people are that have relegated you to the status of property and chattel? And we don't bother to think about that. When Sojourner Truth gives her famous speech, Ain't I a Woman?, and people talk about it, they talk about it within the context of chivalry. Because in the talk she does mention chivalry, that nobody bothers to open up the door, the carriage door for black women to get out. But what's skipped over so often is she says, and I bore 13 children, and saw nearly each one snatched from my arms, and nobody heard my cry but God, ain't I a woman? So before we even get to Roe, we have to deal with this history in our country that just skips over kidnap, sex trafficking, labor trafficking, and the fact that these are human beings, human beings who had to experience this generation upon generation. And we're not just talking about a dozen and let's pay homage to the dozens. We're talking about millions of people who had this experience. And so when we think about Roe v. Wade, what's interesting is that it's a case that's seven to two. It's 1973. 
and it's a seven to two opinion and it's not even close. And the reason why I mention it's seven to two is that in the political milieu and landscape, you'd think it was a really close decision. Boy, and you know, people just couldn't settle it. Five of those seven justices were Republican appointed. Justice Blackman, who wrote the opinion in Roe, was put on the court by Richard Nixon, and nobody would say that Richard Nixon was a radical lefty. <laughs> Not at all. Prescott Bush, the father of George H.W. Bush, first of the Bush presidents, his father, Prescott Bush, was the treasurer of Planned Parenthood. This helps to put in context where we are, how far removed it is, far removed from even the values of the Republican Party. And the only reason why I mention that is because so much of the narrative now that happens to come out as and is anti-abortion is so divorced from where Republicans were. And there are a couple of things that I want to situate on that history and timeline, which is that Roe v. Wade is really seen as that decision, and it was the decision that struck down criminal laws that banned abortion. But it's worth knowing and noting that before Roe, there was a decision called Skinner v. Oklahoma. Skinner v. Oklahoma is 1942. And the reason why it's relevant is that, to the extent that there are those that critique Roe and say, well, where did this come from? No, like, like made up. Well, 30 years before, in Skinner v. Oklahoma, the Supreme Court struck down an Oklahoma law that made it compulsory that people who are considered petty thieves uh, would be castrated and coercively sterilized. The law made an exception if you were a white-collar criminal. So you could have defrauded millions of people out of their pensions, and you'd be just fine. But if you were a chicken thief, as was the case of the person in this situation, you're going to be castrated. The case was challenged, went up to the United States Supreme Court, and the US Supreme Court said, you have a human right to be able to determine your own reproductive destiny. So when there's the, we don't know where Roe came from, <laughs> we, we, we don't know where all this language came from of privacy, autonomy, the body, well, it came from the Supreme Court. <laughs> it came from the Supreme Court 30 years before. The other thing that's worth mentioning is that there is this way in which the language around Roe is like, there was Roe, and then there was Planned Parenthood v. Casey that upheld it, and there's been nothing more. Well, that's not true. 2019, 2020 term, the Supreme Court had a case where it again affirmed Roe v. Wade, right, in, in June Medical v. Rousseau. So I, I share some of that history because it's important that we know what we're dealing with. And I share some of that history, too, because in this leaked draft opinion, there are so many omissions, there are so many errors, there's so much of like cherry picking that if you don't know this history, you think it were right because we want to trust our institutions. And when you read that opinion, I can see why there are people who say that they are so deeply afraid who understand the law, because you see some very intentional gaps and omissions in this draft opinion. And one last thing, and then we'll go to your next question, which is that you ask, you know, well, 
how do we situate Roe itself? And there were cases that led to other cases other than Skinner v. Oklahoma case striking down laws that ban married couples from being able to have access to contraception, right? That's Griswold v. Connecticut uh, about seven years before Roe v. Wade. But after Roe, Roe is not a panacea. It's not a North Star. And many women of color and poor women knew and understood this because the Hyde Amendment, the Hyde Amendment bans federal funds from being used in the process of terminating a pregnancy. And it makes a distinction because federal funds can be used to carry out a pregnancy to term. And there are some exceptions within this with, with Hyde, but essentially what it meant is that if you were a poor woman, you're gonna to struggle to get to that constitutional right. If you were a woman of means, you didn't have to worry, you could go to your local clinic, doctor, what have you, nothing to worry about. But if you're a poor woman and you wanted to be able to have access to this constitutional right, it meant where do you find the money, where do you find the resources, and it made it very hard. And I'm sure we'll unpack more, but I just wanted to level set with that. Right. Thank you so much. I think it's really important to go back and try to frame things, and I love that you come with the, the legal framing because that isn't my expertise. So, But it, it is a time, I think, to look to people like you who have both that historical view and are really interested in social justice in reading the law. So thank you so much. It's really important to learn from you. Um, one thing that I have been watching in the news is how Roe v. Wade itself is framed. And uh, I believe it is being held up to as a North Star and something that is so important and that the sky is absolutely falling if Roe falls. So I have a quote, um, for example, uh, that says, an overwhelming majority of Americans are in favor of pre preserving abortion rights, new polls have found, voters preferring by a two-to-one ratio to maintain the 1973 Roe v. Wade opinion that... Here's the key, safeguarded women's access to the procedure. So you have already talked about the Hyde Amendment, which was in 1979, but mind you, it has had to be renewed every year, and it has been renewed every year under every administration, despite lots of work and advocacy against that. I should also say about Hyde, because it prohibits the use of federal funding for abortion, that there are some states, such as California, that has decided to spend its own state funding. So through the Medi-Cal system, state funding will cover abortion rights. But that's not the case in, in every state. Um, so I'm concerned, and this is from The Guardian, a newspaper that I turn to and I see as being uh, a it's good... It's been essential. <laughs> yes, You're having so to like, look to European essential. news in order to get American news. Yes, <laughs> so true. But they're the ones who, who had this paragraph the opinion that safeguarded women's access to the, to the procedure. So from Hyde Amendment on, even before that, it certainly has not equitably done that. So I see that this assertion really erases the fundamentally unequal access that people have had even under Roe. So we could lay out a whole bunch of categories. So these are just a few low-income folks, Hyde Amendment, mm -hmm. teens, BIPOC folks, mm -hmm. families receiving government assistance, immigrants, undocumented, those living in what we call abortion deserts, mm -hmm. where there are no clinics or no providers, yeah. those who face harassment and violence at clinics. 
So when I was in college, I came of age when uh, I went to the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Joseph Scheidler, who was a primary uh, anti-abortion advocate who started the clinic blockades, Mm -hmm. was based in Chicago and would come down on the bus and the then pro-life organization would host him. And um, it was a really difficult time. So we, on the other side, of course, were going to the clinics and assisting people entering those clinics. So one of the things that I think that we can anticipate is that level of um, hostility and level of harassment and potential for violence in abortion clinics and against abortion providers might continue. So when I am thinking about how Roe is framed, I think in many different ways, but one of the things I want to talk about then is the providers. So access is only possible if you have providers who can do their jobs. And we have seen that providers of abortion care, and you'll note that I do say abortion care, I'm really attentive to language, um, that providers of abortion care have been murdered. They've been murdered in their homes, in their churches, and at the workplace. People have worked at the front desk of abortion clinics. So a whole other conversation to be had would be, why do we have abortion clinics? Why are they, why are they standalone anyway? Isn't this just healthcare? Why can't this be something that is held in hospitals? And would it be safer in hospitals? So for me, trying to talk about this, like, safeguarded women's access to the procedure absolutely is is a misstatement about what Roe is and what Roe does. Is there anything that you'd like to add about this access? (laughs) Well, I think that you did a really good job there. Um, But but let me just say this. We have to be able to see underneath the surface in so many of these areas that, one, we lag behind all peer nations in terms of women's representation in federal government and also in state governments as well. So when you began to see some of the most heinous of these anti-abortion measures taking place, They were coming out of states where there was only 5% representation of women in the state legislature, 7%, 10%. This has all been a very male enterprise uh, that's been taking shape in that regard. Our courts have been male dominant. There is a case that the US Supreme Court uh, that upheld an Illinois law uh, that ban Bradwell v. Illinois barred women from even becoming lawyers. And if we understand that kind of history in terms of the legislative landscape, and then we look beyond that, such as with media and news groups, who are the editors to green light stories such that we would be able to hear about everything that you've just said, right? Do you know that Between 1973 and the times we're in now, there have been 50 bombings of clinics that perform this lawful constitutional service. 50. And not 50 where they had to figure out who did it. We're talking about anti-abortion organizations that claimed responsibility. We bombed and killed them. Doctors and nurses murdered. I have colleagues who refuse to be caught on camera who are OBGYNs, and the reason why is they have a credible fear of someone showing up at their home 
and not killing them, but killing their family members, killing their children. And this is not an irrational fear. This is credible fear. If you read the messaging and threats that come to the doctors, the nurses, the clinics themselves, where they name people. I have interviewed for my podcast owners of the, the owner of the last abortion clinic in Mississippi, staff there. People show up with machine guns outside of that clinic. The doctors arrive in the middle of the night and go through back doors. People come there and take down the license plate numbers of the people who show up. It's not just the patient and who knows which one is the patient and which one is the escort. It's that kind of milieu, but it hasn't been captured. We should all know this, but it matters who's the editor at the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, whether they think it's relevant that these are the experiences that women and girls have. And if they think it's not relevant, it doesn't happen. It's worth noting that a few years ago, the New York Times did a seven-part piece on the status of reproductive health rights and justice, and it was something that I consulted with them on. It came out of the op-ed pages. Now, you might wonder, op-ed, there's nothing that is opinion about what is happening. It's empirical. That's, that's not an opinion. But it was because there were women in the op-ed department. The guys in the news department weren't greenlighting it. There's women in the, uh, in the opinion section that said that this matters. And so they covered it as if it was news, and it is news, all of this that we're talking about. And so all of this matters. And I think that you know, as you're expressing this matter of the kind of violence that has been associated with this, the kind of terrorism, in any other context, we would call it terrorism. If there were any organization that said, we're responsible for 50 bombings, we've killed you know, doctors and nurses, we've killed security guards, we firebomb, we make threats, we show up with machine guns, in any other instance, right? Am I wrong? It'd be like terrorist watch list. It would, you know? So, so anyway, I mean, I think that that is important, even though it is true that there are people who are anti-abortion and who are a part of those institutional structures, right? I get that, right? And each person is entitled to his, her, their own opinions. But the reality is that as an institutional infrastructure and movement, that has significantly been it. Absolutely. Domestic terrorism. It is. Let's call it domestic terrorism. And uh, around a health care right. Absolutely, around a healthcare. And when you think about what that does, I mean, that's meant to chill people's behavior. It's meant to make people fearful. Yeah, I've been saying that this is an era of a new Jane Crow. For those of you in the audience, the students who've studied the period of Jim Crow, Jim Crow is that period that comes right after the abolition of slavery, where people of color, black folks, are subjected to a second-class citizenship, even though this, even though the Constitution of this country is, there's 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 a 13th Amendment which abolishes slavery. There's a 14th Amendment that provides equal protection under law. A 15th Amendment that even provides black people with the right to be able to vote, or at least black men. But we see through the 20th century 
states enacting laws that ban black people from doing any number of things, right? You can't go into the park if you're black. You can't swim in the swimming pool if you're black. Um, you can't ride in the taxi if you're black. You can't do interstate, like all of these different things. Um, literally thousands and thousands of Jim Crow laws. Well, we're about to enter a period, we're already there, kind of in the preface of the new Jane Crow. And Jane Crow is a terminology that Polly Murray, Dr. Polly Murray came up with, a brilliant person that you all should know about. And here's what I'll say in, in brief about Dr. Murray. Justice Thurgood Marshall said that she had written the Bible of the civil rights movement. And what makes her so fascinating is not only did she provide the framework for what would be Brown v. Board of Education and the striking down of so many race laws, she provided the foundation for what would be the work that Ruth Bader Ginsburg did at the ACLU. Only she came 20 years before Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right? And nobody knows her, you know why? Because she was a black woman. She too graduated first in her law school class. 1945, she wrote a law review piece in the uh, California Law Review, Berkeley, um, on Jane Crow, on sex discrimination that women experience. Everybody should know it. 80 years ago, she was doing this work. Kind of forgotten the history, so I like lifting her up. But the point being is that we're about to come into a period of Jane Crow, a new period of it, and we're already seeing it, where there are governors that are saying, next is going to be to ban contraception. After that, we're going to be policing when people go interstate to try to get abortion pills. Um, we're going to be policing whether people try to get pills in the mail to be able to terminate their pregnancy. We're going to be policing the people who aid and abet people who try to terminate a pregnancy and so much more. I mean, this is right now on the horizon. And I appreciate that you're using that language of policing and surveillance. And we can see in the Texas law in particular that that putting into policy surveillance as a mechanism. And unfortunately, that is, or, or fortunately perhaps, it makes it visible that this is something that other states will be moving toward, I would say. That's right. I mean, to, to get some idea of the landscape here, because for, pe for people who think, well, this is just about abortion and they're not really certain where they sit on the issue, there, there are a few things, both medical and then this other part that you were just mentioning with the Texas law. So to level set a little bit, Pregnancies are parasitic. Now, I'm a mom, and I love my daughter, but pregnancies are parasitic, right? So this idea that women are supposed to be pregnant, no, it's parasitic. It is. They're 14 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term than by having an abortion. 14 times. Now, I love my daughter to pieces, love her deeply, but that's a reality. You would think in this backdrop that an abortion was the most dangerous decision that a woman could choose. Not at all. The World Health Organization, after decades and decades of study, compares it to the safety of a penicillin shot. It's one of the safest medications you could take to terminate a pregnancy and one of the safest surgeries you could have. Having an abortion by surgery is safer than having a colonoscopy. You wouldn't know it by the political rhetoric that surrounds this. But let's dig deeper into this and what it means. 
The United States leads the developed world, and I put air quotes around that, right, in terms of develop, what the hell is, is that, right? But peer nations. The United States leads all peer nations in the rates of maternal mortality. Now, this isn't Professor Goodwin making this up. You only need to go to the state's Department of Health in these very states. And if you wanted to just get a collective of this, go to the CIA's website. And here, I'm talking about Central Intelligence Agency. They actually collect the data and they report it right there. The US ranks 55th in the world in maternal mortality. We're not in that capacity hanging out with Germany and France and England, right? Typical peers, we're just like you. No, Saudi Arabia, Bosnia, Russia. Though that's the company that we keep in terms of maternal mortality. And then we pull back again. And you look nationwide at what this means for black and brown women. So nationally, black women are three and a half times more likely to die than their white counterparts due to maternal mortality. And then you drill deeper by going into specific states where they have a proliferation of anti-abortion laws. And guess what? Black women are five times more likely, 10 times more likely, 15 times more likely than their white counterparts to die during pregnancy. You look at Mississippi, 80% of cardiac deaths during pregnancy, black women. So when the state of Mississippi says, as the state of Mississippi did, yes. the reason why we passed this law is because we're trying to protect women. And you say, how in the world would you be trying to protect women by enacting an abortion ban, given the data that comes from your own State Department of Health? Your own data tells us about the way in which women die in your state, and your governor shows no evidence of doing anything to correct about it. In fact, the Mississippi law has been challenged to the United States Supreme Court, and the draft opinion that we've all been talking about is from that case. But the law has not yet gone into effect because there was a judge, Judge Carlton Reeves, who issued an injunction, otherwise known as a stay, meaning we see you and this law can't go into effect. But it's worth reading his footnotes because in the footnotes, Judge Reeves says, Mississippi, I see you. And what you're doing is gaslighting women. Those are his words. He uses the words of this is gaslighting, right? Can you imagine a federal judge saying this is gaslighting? Well, that's because it's so absurd. He's like, he's looking at Mississippi's data. How in the world does this comport with the state of Mississippi saying, I'm just trying to help you? Trying to help you do what? When you all have one of the highest death rates in the entire developed world. Texas has been considered the most dangerous place in the developed world. Mississippi competes with Texas as the most dangerous place in the developed world to be pregnant. Now let that sink in when we're thinking about abortion politics in the US. Absolutely. I remember years ago being with some um, reproductive rights scholars and activists, and one of them said, this was years ago, I would never be pregnant in the state of South Carolina. And it was the first time that I had ever thought about choosing where to be pregnant in a state. Mm -hmm. And now South Carolina is even in a better position than other states. So it's fascinating how things change over time. 
Well, one thing that I'm concerned about in terms of these discussions about Roe now is the US-centric nature of it. I think it's really important to look at other countries and to do this comparison of maternal mortality, for example, um, and also to broaden out what, what we are thinking about when we are thinking about abortion rights. So the reproductive justice movement, for example, has really been centering the many different components of rights. So the right to bear a child, the right to raise a child, and the right to raise a child in a supportive community, a healthy community. So when you think about reproductive justice, it really extends to things like maternal mortality, looking at infant mortality, sexuality education, consent education, a whole range of different issues that are not just grappled with in the United States. These are things that all countries are really invested in grappling with. So back to, I was telling you about, I was on a college campus, things were very heated, I was in the Abortion Rights Coalition, there is no such organization now called the Abortion Rights Coalition. Oh, and let me just say an aside. I forgot to say, if any of you get to see the little news clip that's circulating now of 1973 of when the news is covering Roe v. Wade having been supported, the word abortion is repeated constantly. You do not hear the word abortion much anymore in the news. And so I think back to, we had a, a campus organization. It was called the Abortion Rights Organization. This was before reproductive justice as a term was circulating. We knew a bit about intersectionality. We called it different things back then. But we would have the usual campus shenanigans going on with Joseph Scheidler and the anti-abortion group doing their thing. And then we would counter-protest or they would protest. And I got tired of the just like going back and forth of it all and no, no dialogue nothing moving forward, and not to mention that, just the hatred and hostility. Um, so I decided I would think about what was going on in other countries. And I looked to Japan, because Japan had very high abortion rates, but very low conflict over abortion. This led me in to do a senior uh, thesis, a plug to students here. Please, we're at a Research One University. Take time out to do some research on a research team or independent study or your own research. It's really important. Um, so I did a study that was looking at what I thought was going to be about abortion in Japan and turned out to be about how the Japanese had different ideas of fetal spirithood and fetal personhood. So it was interesting that this idea of personhood was so prominent there, and yet the conflict was not high. Because here in the United States, this idea of who gets to define what a person is, when somebody becomes a person. So um, I'll tell you another footnote about that. My Japanese was not very good, even though I studied it as an undergrad. And then I went to Japan for a while. My Japanese was not very good at all. But my advisor you know, pushed me to publish my senior thesis, and I did. And then a scholar uh, at Harvard published a book that was on similar topics, and she knew her Japanese. And it was a, such an interesting, different perspective that she had. So one of the things in feminist studies we always talk about is that we never have the full view of things. We have partial views. So I continue to think in my, my little senior uh, thesis uh, that I had a partial view. But what it made me do was attend more to this category of personhood. And that's what I think that you were starting with. 
And um, Dorothy Roberts' book, classic now, Killing the Black Body, really talks about the category of personhood. We are, in the United States, we are often pitting the fetus as a person against the person who is pregnant. And somehow that has become a natural and normal part of how we talk about this. We don't talk about the parasite kind of uh, model, but I think that it, now is a time for us to do some more imagining and be able to talk about pregnancy and the relationship and rights and who becomes a person in some different ways. Because I don't know about you, but I'm just tired of the same old ways since the 1980s, for example, or the 70s, or even the 60s before Roe. These differences were being debated. And what we see, if we can, look at other places. And let's figure out how are they looking at these complex issues. I've also seen, and I, I think I giggled like that or guffawed when I saw this, some news headline that said, uh-oh, Roe is um, going to be overturned in the U.S. All other countries look out. They're going to slide backwards, too. And that is absolutely not what's going on right now. So this U.S.-centricness, although, of course, we are talking about U.S. laws, and that is really important to understand the U.S. context for U.S. laws, what do you think about some other things that we can learn from different places to help us understand our way forward? Well, I've mentioned the Hyde Amendment. There's legislation that was also called the Helms Amendment. Um, so Senator Helms, Jesse Helms, was a self-affirmed uh, homophobe, a self-affirmed sexist, self-affirmed racist. And what I mean by self-affirmed is that he was very proud of where he stood on these issues. Uh, notoriously, uh, in the 1980s, he was very outspoken. Um, against providing a federal support for people who had contracted HIV AIDS. Um, he very much outspokenly um, used derogatory terms towards women, uh, towards uh, black people, uh, towards gay people. And Senator Helms um, is known for many things, but within this regard, the Helms Amendment is one that bars federal funding through US aid abroad to be used for abortion. Now, the Hyde Amendment is something that comes about in 1973, so it's after the US Supreme Court has uh, decided Roe v. Wade. And there was much pushback, but clearly not enough, right? Um, because the pushback was how in the world could the U.S. be complicit in suggesting abroad that women who are abroad shouldn't be able to have access to what women in the United States have. And Jesse Helms, because he was such a cynic and because he didn't support U.S. aid in the first place after coercing people to support his amendment, he didn't sign on to it at all because he didn't support U.S. aid abroad. So this kind of navel-gazing, as you talk about, is something that is really important in terms of our signaling. That said, you know, last week I was doing news interviews with Canadian press, and there are members of their 
government that are saying they'll welcome people from the United States who need reproductive health care in Canada. And already there are Americans who are going to Mexico for reproductive health care. Absolutely. And that takes many people back to pre-Roe because that women who had uh, enough means were traveling Well, abroad. they were. About 25% of the abortions taking place abroad were actually of American women. And of course, these are women who had the resources to be able to go abroad to be able to have those services performed there. Uh, but as you've already heard about back alley abortions, the reality is that you know, there were parents who came home and found their daughters dead in bathtubs, having bled out. Husbands who came home to find their wives uh, in pain and suffering on dining room tables because they tried to do abortions with coat hangers or by whatever means. Women found in motel rooms on top of newspapers and sheets and towels from having had uh, a botched back alley abortion. And then there were the people who survived but took up half of the maternity wards were women who were trying to survive after having an abortion procedure that did not go well. Um, and then there were people who went to all myriad of other kinds of places, including Mexico, to get their abortions performed. So that's the history leading up to Roe. Absolutely. So also, there is such a thing as safe early abortion feminist uh, women's health advocates. Or, the Janes. Yes, the Jane Collective in the Chicago area. They learned um, how to perform early abortions. Um, this was before Roe. This is a time in which there were, uh, wow, the, you know, think about it. You had to have phones that weren't even in dorm rooms. This was about, you know, around University of Chicago area in the beginning, and they would have a whole hotline system. Do you all know anything about the Janes? There's some of some, you do, yeah, and then some, some of you don't. Yeah, there's some good. Uh, they were good a PR about them. Yeah, they were. There are two. Do there are two films coming out. One is a documentary, and one is a feature film, and it's about this group of folks your age uh, who ultimately start performing abortions. And it starts with one who has a friend, and the friend says, "I need an abortion. I cannot carry this pregnancy to term. You got to help me find an abortion." And she was able to do so. She actually found a doctor, a black doctor, who had been part of the civil rights movement and was sympathetic to people who were trying to get liberty and freedom and to be able to maintain control over their own bodies. And so this black doctor began performing abortions uh, for, there was first the one, and then another friend or a person found out that this woman helped. And so she went back to this doctor and he did a series of then, but, but it was illegal to do this. And ultimately, he got in trouble for doing this. So, but then the demand was so high because people kept coming to this woman who had found the means, and they found somebody um, who would do them. And he projected himself to be a doctor. Ultimately, they found out he was not a doctor at all. And when the gig was up and they found out, you're not even a doctor and you're doing this, how do we do it if you can do it? You know, you're just a guy. Yes. And so these women who were in their early 20s and late teens, they're like, we will study this and we'll figure out how to do it. They never lost a patient. Nobody. They did hundreds of them. Everybody 
survived and lived, and they would move around to different places in order to evade the police. And they had the mistresses of police officers, the mistresses of state legislators, housewives, college students, they were all coming to them. And actually, they, when they were found out, and it was interesting, the raid that took place, because when the police raided them, and they were found out because someone told her sisters-in-law that she was going to have an abortion, and the sisters-in-law went to the police, said, our sister-in-law is about to have an abortion. And when the police did the raid, they're like, where's the guy? Where's the guy? Where'd the doctor go? Where's the doctor? And it's like, it can't be you. It can't be you group of five women in your 20s performing these abortions. And it was. And ultimately, the charges against them were dropped because Roe v. Wade uh, was decided. Fascinating. A feature film on the Jane Collective. Who would guess? Who would guess? Who would guess? But you know, there's another case that we should talk about. And this is the case of Kathy Strzok, Captain Kathy Strzok, because Ruth Bader Ginsburg had hoped that this would actually be the case that would go before the United States Supreme Court. And this says a lot about where abortion stood, or the politics. So much of this is just the politics of who gets to control women's reproductive destinies. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Captain Kathy Strzok was was in the US military, and she got pregnant, and she wanted to keep her pregnancy. But guess what? The US military required that if you were a woman in the military and you were pregnant, you had to have an abortion. This is before Roe. If you worked in the US military and you were a woman and you got pregnant, you were either kicked out or they told you, have an abortion. Captain Strzok didn't want to have an abortion. She wanted to carry her pregnancy to term. And she told her commanding officers, she said, look, I will turn my child over, I, I, will, I will surrender the child for adoption, but I just want to be able to carry this pregnancy to term. Nine times she appealed. Each time they told her no, Ruth Bader Ginsburg represented her, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg hoped that this would be the case to go up to the United States Supreme Court, but it was Roe v. Wade that was the case. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It's, the issues are incredibly complex, and so I really enjoy being able to think more deeply about this complexity. So it looks like we have about 20 minutes left, so I'm wondering if we can shift a little bit and talk a little bit about some of the things that are being done now, more future-looking. So, um, for example, I was reading recently that the director of the Federal Reproductive Rights uh, Section of the National Women's Law Center said that, quote, the Women's Health Protection Act is a response to the last decade where anti-abortion lawmakers and states have passed more than 500 restrictions and bans on abortion care. Remember this idea that Roe v. Wade guaranteed access to abortion care? 500 restrictions. Okay, so given that you have testified before Congress and the Senate Judiciary's Committee's Subcommittee on the Constitution, for example, in 2021, I wonder if you could speak about the Women's Health Protection Act and the symbolic and practical goals of its advocates and how it can address racial, gender, legal, and health disparities. Thank you so much for that question. It's a great question. So there is a possibility that the federal government 
could codify Roe v. Wade, basically what that means is that all that Roe stands for, that Congress could enact a law that basically is a Roe law. Gives, it gives exactly what Roe does, but it comes through Congress. That is possible. And that legislation is called the Women's Health Protection Act. It does not seek to strike down Hyde or anything like that, but it codifies Roe v. Wade. Within the next week, there's going to be a vote on it. Yes. It will very likely make it through the House of Representatives, and likely it will be defeated in the Senate. But there is something to be said even in that defeat, and that is to say that it will be clear how senators voted. And to the extent that there are people who are active at the state level, who are pressuring their lawmakers, and who are thinking about midterm elections and who to vote for, then this is going to be an important vote no matter what. It is not the end of it all because, as you were saying, those who support reproductive justice, which is a reframing of thinking about reproductive rights, and so much about reproductive rights has been exclusively about abortion that it's missed out so many other areas that matter to one's reproductive health. The ability, for example, to be able to carry a pregnancy to term and survive it, and to do so with dignity the ability to have access to contraception, the ability to have access to meaningful sex education. I mean, it's worth noting that the US, again, one of those developed world, but leads the developed world in terms of teens contracting sexually transmitted diseases. Why is it that teens in the United States have higher rates of gonorrhea, chlamydia, and things like that? Well, they don't have sex education. Only kids who don't know exactly what sex is, kids being taught abstinence only, we know that fails, right? We know that makes absolutely no sense. It's a sort of abstinence only in a space in which kids are having sex, right? And so when you think about beyond just the right to abortion and think about these other areas, those are other areas in which Congress and also states could enact laws to make protections and if we're to think beyond that and what the Women's Health Protection Act doesn't provide for us, what do you do after kids are born? What's that life like and what are the guarantees like after children are born? And here are a few things that are worth us remembering about this United States Supreme Court and also other areas. Before this particular iteration of the court, which now has Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh and Barrett, the three justices that were named to the court by President Donald Trump, already it was a Supreme Court that in recent years refused to advance women's equality across a series of cases where women had petitioned the Supreme Court involving discrimination in pregnancy, involving discrimina discrimination uh, in the job, uh, concerning discrimination in terms of promotions, all of this, the Supreme Court decided against these groups of women who came before them. So then when we think about, well, what's that life after you have given birth? Well, these are states, states that are passing anti-abortion legislation that haven't expanded Medicaid. These are states where there hasn't been an investment in the infrastructure with regard to childcare assistance. These have been states that have gutted welfare access. 
When I was working on my book, Policing the Womb, even though I write in this area and I know this area quite well, looking at new iterations of anti-welfare legislation, I mean, would you even have thought that it's such a punitive space that there's a policing of children's birthday cakes? That if you have too many sprinkles on the birthday cake, you can't pay for it through your welfare allotment? I mean, who would ever think, who, who sits and makes these laws that say, you know, the birthday cake, only so much sprinkles if you happen to be on welfare. Too many sprinkles, sorry, we can't help you. We're talking about these very same states. I mean, and in that way, it's just punitive and cruel. So there are avenues for doing great things. And also at the same time, there's so much more that needs to be done for the children that people want to be able to have. Absolutely. So, and just as we can talk about at the federal level of uh, passing some kind of protection like the Women's Health Protection Act or other uh, national level, federal level types of laws, we know that anti-abortion advocates are already floating their own and they have since the 1980s. Since the 1980s, the Human Life Amendment. And what is that about? It's about defining personhood from conception. That has been a primary goal. And still, we might see some of this. We might see some movement to have national anti-abortion legislation. Why? Because now we know that there are some states in the post-Roe landscape will be providing abortion. California being one of them is really being responsible and responsive in thinking about how much more care there's going to have to be in this state and how to provide for it. I think one interesting thing that we are in the UC system, we have medical schools. We have, we have people who need to be trained about how to do abortion care. This is a huge problem now that because of the stigma around it, now because of the legality of abortion, also because of the relatively low numbers of abortions in the US now. Training for the procedures is not a part of medical education. I hope in the UC yeah. system, we don't have a medical school here at UCSB, but I really want to advocate for that in that's UC right. medical. That's, that's right, that's a very important point. So, you know, as I mentioned before, pregnancies are parasitic. They're ectopic pregnancies that someone could have which could kill a person, the, this pregnancy lodging in the fallopian tubes. Uh, there is gestational diabetes, hemorrhaging. There are any number of conditions that are never talked about, right, in this kind of pronatal space that are the kinds of conditions that make for significant complications during uh, pregnancy, including the pressure on a heart, such as those cardiac deaths black women experiencing in places like Mississippi and whatnot. And so paying attention and building out infrastructure in that way is really important. But imagine this, imagine that you're going to medical school and imagine with this backdrop that we've just talked about, all these complications that are part of pregnancy that you never hear about in the popular press, the popular news, right, that people can experience. Now imagine you're in medical school and you're not even trained how to deal with them. Imagine you're not trained to know how to safely manage a miscarriage. Now that's a, you know, it's, it's, it's euphemism for 
providing an abortion. It's called managing a miscarriage when you've wanted to be pregnant, but unfortunately you're going to die if you continue the pregnancy. So there is a managed miscarriage. But there are medical school students who don't know how to do that. So you show up at the ER bleeding and hemorrhaging. And imagine that you're with a doctor who was never trained with how to do this. Now imagine that you're not one twelfth of the population, one tenth of the population, one quarter of the population, but half of the population in the United States that has the potential to experience these things. And you have medical school students who are not being trained how to address these medical challenges at all. And something else that's worth us talking about, and I realize we're going to be wrapping up on time really shortly, but if we're thinking about how did we get here, there's always been, as you say, starting from the very beginning, there were fringe movements around this because it was never a deep divide. But what we've been seeing over time is a financial weaponization in this space and a messaging weaponization in this space. And you see a critical moment of it during President Obama's administration. I have said that if Mitt Romney had won, we wouldn't be here now. We might be getting here, but we wouldn't be. But the racism that President Obama encountered is significant. And at the time, and I've met with reporters that said they misread it. They thought that this wasn't about racism. In part, they thought it was just kind of politics. But there was enormous racism. And so then it's not a surprise when you think about it, and think about it, right? The death of Heather Heyer in 2017, the rise of white nationalism, all of this stuff that we've seen, right? When do we see the genesis of this modern era of the rise of white nationalism? It takes place during President Obama's administration. So that between 2010 and 2013, there's more anti-abortion, anti-contraception laws that are being proposed and enacted than the 30 years prior combined. It becomes this kind of hot space. And at the same time, something that we can't divorce from this conversation is that we see the rise of voter suppression, right? To snatch away the vote from people, right? And these two must be read together and not read uh, apart from each other. Absolutely, absolutely. So it's interesting to think about patterns and I think that you're talking about the sprinkles. Who's sitting around deciding this? I think about that often too. Who is making these things happen at the same time? How, how can it, it can't just be coincidence. There are movements that have been, had this, I call it the playbook. They have had this as their playbook, and they're turning the pages, checking off the to-do list. One thing that's very interesting, so as you heard, I um, did research on baby safe haven laws. The first safe haven law was in 1999. It was called the Baby Moses Law in Texas. In Texas gives me the chills. Why? Because now we see a Supreme Court justice saying we don't need abortion. We don't need abortion rights. We've got safe haven laws on the books. Yeah, and you also saw in that opinion, too, a reference to, to we need more babies, right? And you know that's not code for we need more black and brown babies. 
It's not. And, you know, look, it's, it's worth noting that, as Justice Blackmun said in Roe, abortions had not been criminalized originally in the United States, and they hadn't. The pilgrims were performing abortions. Abortions were being performed by the indigenous people who were here, you know, carrying pregnancies to term, abortion contraception, all of that. Abortion becomes this political hotspot at the time in which, not in the too far distance, we could see the Civil War coming. And with the Civil War, if the Union won, there would be the abolition of slavery and black people would be able to live how they wanted to and on their own. Now, we know that that didn't fully manifest, but the fear about the blackening and browning of the United States was real. The people who tried to push midwives out, nearly 100% of reproductive health care had been done by women. They were the midwives. And if you think about it, right, there are no guys with stethoscope and lab coats roaming around Asia. North America, Africa, they weren't. These were women, right? Like, just think about it, right? I mean, you, you know, the kind of popular press and what you sort of get from some of these senators is this idea that there were like men roaming around 5,000 years ago doing reproductive health services. They were not. They were women who were doing nearly 100% of reproductive health care on these lands. But at the rise of obstetrics and gynecology becoming a science, if you will, there were these guys who wanted to hold on to that space for themselves, and they needed to push these women out, and they wrote about it. They wrote about their insecurities because they were being teased as doing women's work. Half of these people were black women who were the midwives, a quarter indigenous and white women, and they wanted to push them out, and the tool that they used to push them out was abortion, to say how dare these women are performing this immoral service called abortion, and then they pushed towards that criminalization. And they wrote about how it was necessary for white women to use their loins and go north, south, east, and west. And this is part of the language and backdrop that we see today. Absolutely. Well, I'm really glad that you brought up midwives, because midwives are not just a thing of the past. We still have midwives, and they provide holistic care. And so it's really important to think about how we should be able to expand and innovate about who we think is the best, provides the best care, right? So not only that, there's also doulas. Doulas are supporters both for birthing. There are death doulas. There are abortion doulas. So there are a number of ways that we can think innovatively about how we can provide the care that people need and not just get locked into these political debates. Greg. Yes. Before I call for applause, we're, we're at our time, but I just want to say a few things. Um, this has been as rich as I would hope for. I wish the time weren't now for this conversation, but manifestly it is. And to have such guides through it as you two is, is just fantastic. Thank you. Can I ask just one more question? A short question. Very. Short it, I, think a, I think it'll be short. Classroom. I think it'll be short. Keep it tight, Professor Goodwin. What gives you hope in this moment for a more just, feminist, and anti-racist future? What gives me hope is that we've been here before and we have prevailed. What gives me hope is that we can do better than we've done in the past. That we can get it right this time, and we can get it right in such a way that centers and includes women. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.